The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Gavin Muller. This is part one of a two-part conversation on his new book, Breaking Things at Work, The Luddites Are Right About Why You Hate Your Job. In the first part of our conversation, we talk about the history of the Luddites, why their reputation for conservative technophobia is undeserved, and how their struggles to resist the imposition of new de-skilling technologies are relevant to the contemporary workplace. We also talked about the problems of left-wing techno-utopianism. Remember that if you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and all other regular PTO episodes, you can sign up as a PTO supporter on Patreon. For £3 a month, you can get access to extended versions of regular shows, and £5 patrons also get exclusive access to episodes of PTO Extra, shorter interviews on current events. And if you're outside the UK, you can now also support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of excellent titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is The Care Crisis, What Caused It and How Can We End It by Emma Dowling. The book looks at the multifaceted nature of care in the modern world, from the mantras of self-care and what they tell us about our anxieties, to the state of the social care system. A book for our times, The Care Crisis maps the economy of abandonment, raising the question, what would it mean to seriously value care? The book is out now from Verso Books, you can buy it directly from their website, or get it as part of your Verso Book Club membership. Go to versobooks.com for more information. And now to today's interview. Gavin Muller is the author of Media Piracy in the Cultural Economy, Intellectual Property and Labour under Neoliberal Restructuring. He's a contributing editor at Jacobin and a member of the Viewpoint magazine Editorial Collective. Clearly the book is not a history of of Luddism or, or anything like it, but I think many people will know the term Luddite solely as a pejorative and will have a fairly limited knowledge of, of Luddism as a political movement. So could you say something on who the Luddites were when they were politically active and what their political beliefs and practice consisted of? Sure, yeah. So the Luddites were essentially textile workers located in the north and midlands of England and their political movement during which they they took this name happened in the the second decade of the 19th century which was a very a time of actual global kind of turmoil all over the place these textile weavers were facing a threat in the form of new kinds of technologies which essentially made it possible to make cheaper kinds of textiles that undermined this kind of skilled trade that had been established. So you had really some of the earliest factory production springing up 
in order to concentrate workers around these new kinds of machines. And the workers, rather than be these kinds of skilled craftspeople who were part of a guild that was recognized by the British government, right? So they had particular kind of privileges enshrined in law, rates and ability to control their trade and so forth. You had these machines where you didn't require any kind of training or background, very, very little in that respect. And so many of these factories were the workers were increasingly drawn from people who had been outside of labor markets and also women and children. And so very quickly, the weavers recognized the kind of existential threat that this new form of production posed not just to their work, but their entire communities, right? You had entire towns were made up of weavers who, you know, were not wealthy by any means, but had fairly comfortable by the, the time standards living conditions. And also with a lot of control over their work, so they could pursue all sorts of hobbies. The historian E.P. Thompson has some nice passages where he describes the weaver poets and weaver biologists. You know, they had these very well-developed kind of rich lives. And they very quickly perceived that this would all be under threat because with the machines, you didn't have to, you had no control over it. Wages would be completely decimated. And there were no job protections. So not only would individual jobs and careers be undermined, but that would also sap all the wealth out of communities. It would eradicate these kind of, you know, hobbyist practices that had sprung up among there and lead to kind of a desolation there. So they had to act. There were no uh, unions were totally illegal during this time. They'd been made illegal by law. But as a guild, initially, the, you know, there were some protections, legal protections. And, and so these weavers petitioned the government, said, hey, you know, respect the law. These machines were not OK with them. They're illegal. They have no right to do this. But the government actually didn't care because, you know, there was an advantage to the state to have, you know, a lot of cheaply produced goods. And so then tactics had to kind of take a, a more dramatic turn where you have a kind of underground movement form that's based around practices of, of sabotage. That's the kind of most notable militant practice of the Luddites was the machine breaking. And that's kind of synonymous with that. And there were, there were several months, a few discontinuous kind of waves of widespread machine breaking where bands of these Luddites would kind of attack various factories and smash the gig mills and the other machines that you know, represented the threat to their livelihood and also, you know, effectively intimidate these uh, employers who were, you know, engaged in unethical business practices from their perspective. And so that's the most notable thing, right? The Luddites with their, with their hammers, smashing machines. But they also engaged in a lot of other practices as well. They wrote letters. There's a great book that's a, just a compendium of, the, of these letters where they, they're writing letters to politicians and also to factory owners, kind of threatening them and often signing them with this name Ned Ludd, who is this kind of mythical figure that they kind of rally around, right? And so this goes on for a few years until things really start to kind of spin out of control. There's actual violence and, and killings. There's some assassinations of some factory owners. And so the authorities are called in and eventually they actually have to send uh, more troops into the north of England than they had in France fighting Napoleon at the time. But eventually they, they were able to kind of root out this movement. 
And much like the Luddites had predicted or, or were worried about, these communities these, uh, that were based around the textile industry descended into poverty. And people, you know, there were no kind of social protections at the time. This was, you know, this was actually economic doctrine. You can't do anything to help people in a systematic way. And, you know, people, they, they you know, went from prosperous communities to people starving in the streets. But the legend lived on. The overall spirit, the idea that certain forms of technology are threaten people's ways of life and certain forms of technology should need to be opposed. And also that there is a class character in these kinds of technology, I think are all embodied in this Luddite movement and that gave it a kind of longevity. This is also where they become a kind of poster children of kind of a backwardsness, right? You know, you, the, the pejorative sense of the term Luddite is, is a kind of futile reaction against technology, right? Yeah, you're holding back the tide of history. Exactly, exactly. And I think this was, you know, you have your typical kind of account of the Industrial Revolution is it's, you know, it's this momentous thing in human history. You know, our entire society is, is based around it. And, and, you know, to oppose it would have been madness, you know, where we'd be living in caves or something without it. And so, so the Luddites are this kind of, you know, foolhardy, you know, rearguard action against progress. And I think that's, that's, you know, not very sustainable. I mean, you know, if you have any kind of historical imagination to, to, to put yourself in their shoes, it's understandable why they revolted. If you look at scholarship on the Industrial Revolution, living conditions worsened for at least two generations. So, you know, that it wasn't just the Luddites who were suffering from this. So in part why I start my kind of intervention with this is I really did want to think about the politics of kind of technology and capitalism and resistance to capitalist technologies. And I thought picking this, you know, this moment where that is is famous, but also kind of infamous for, for, for being a waste of time or, or, or completely uh, without merit would be, you know, a kind of a challenge or, or if I could, you know, and, and, and actually when I started doing the research, I found that, you know, I was far from the first person to have the idea to cast a more sympathetic eye on the Luddites. You have many quite notable historians and many other people and, and various kind of neo-Luddite movements at various points in time. So that was actually kind of interesting and started generating this idea that there might be a kind of alternative or even heretical kind of account of the development of capitalism and technology that would that could be critical of technology and could could lend a more sympathetic eye to the movements and practices of the people who who struggled against what the history books would later deem progress even if one accepts that that depiction of the luddites as these technophobes even if one accepts that that's incorrect couldn't an argument be made that even if we accept the uh, deleterious effects of technology upon the Luddites and upon workers more generally that you describe, nonetheless, there was a certain inevitability about the transition away from their working practices because of the exigencies of, of economic competition. So why do you not see that technological transformation as, as simply inevitable? Yeah, I think, you know, part of this is my training in media and cultural studies. One of your first lessons is to avoid all technological determinism. And I think that was kind of an underlying motivation there, right? If, if there's already a path laid out, where do people and their, and their lives and their struggles fit in if there's already this kind of pathway? But if you start looking, right, I mean, this is I actually found some very interesting 
historical work in France. They were actually, you know, France is maybe today the most Luddite nation in some, or their, the, the population maybe in some respects. I, I know a few, well, I know a lot more French people than I used to now that I live in Europe. And it seems like they all, they all work in tech and they all want to grow carrots on a farm. That's their like golden life. <laughs> but, um, anyway, the, the, they, you know, they had a, a path of industrial development where that, that was similar in that many of the same industries arose at the same time, similar technologies, you know, just like you might expect in, in, in any kind of situation, right? Where, you know, they're adopting the latest technologies to compete on these national and international markets. But the movements there were actually quite successful. And actually managed to to the point where the factories closed down essentially for a generation, and home based production reigned. And uh, some some historians, this is not my area of expertise, but some historians argue that there's this antipathy not just to technology but also to work that is prevalent among French people and French culture. That as a result of these kinds of struggles, ultimately having some more success than they than they did in England. So I think that's another kind of lesson that I drew out of this, out of the work that went into this book. Was it? It's one thing to evaluate a struggle as like, did it win or did it lose? You know, did wages go up? Was a regulation passed? Was a union formed? And these kinds of things. But even even struggles where there's no kind of necessary institutional legacy like that still leave a mark on people in the forms of attitudes and the forms of their daily practices, the stories they tell and pass on to their children and their overall perspective on their day-to-day lives. And I think that that's another kind of thing that I got out of looking at some of this early work in the 19th century. That, you know, even if these things failed, the Luddites were rolled over in a, in a few years, factories were erected, populations, you know, subjected to, to, to that form of, of labor discipline. The struggles themselves also have a history. It's a bit harder to perceive, but it's also something that I think if we are people that value struggles against capitalism, like that's those, that's our history. Our history is not the history of ever greater machines. It's the history of the, the people who fought against their bosses, whether that meant they formed a union or they wrote a nasty letter or they, you know, smashed a gig mill. And so I think we do ourselves a disservice to evaluate our history only in terms of wins and losses, because I don't think I don't think we look very good at that in that way. I think it's hard to hard to stay optimistic. And I think that it's in some ways thinking about it that way, thinking about a kind of underground current right, to me, is a valuable way of perceiving some of the things that we do and that we engage in in our contemporary life and seeing seeing movements like the Luddites in a similar way. Did they have everything figured out? No, but, you know, they had uh, they had a, a labor struggle that continues to be remembered and discussed and analyzed and, and even inspire people to this day. And I think there's immense value in those kinds of things. And I hope that we can recover other moments in this way. Do you think also there's perhaps a particular relevance today, perhaps more so than there was, say, 30 years ago? Because in the book, you quote Eric Hobsbawm talking about the Luddites and making the point that in contrast to the more disciplined and homogenized labor movement of the mid 20th century, he wrote that in those 
pre-socialist times, the working class was a crowd and not an army. And does that perhaps also hold true to some extent in the current era in the context of the relative decline of the unions and union density, at least outside of the public sector from the 1980s onwards? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the way I interpret this Hasbam's analysis is he's talking about the composition of the working class at the time. It hasn't developed, you know, the kind of familiar trade union structures, in part because it's illegal and in part because it's, it's novel. Uh, you know, so they, they don't have those, those avenues of recourse. They have other, other ways of coming together to, to wage their struggles. And I think that in many ways, we're in a similar place. I'm American, and we have all sorts of laws that have been passed in the 20th century up until today that, that severely curtail the kinds of labor activity that, you know, led to the kind of high watermark of uh, the working class in the United States. Yeah, we have some similar laws in the UK, unfortunately. Right. I mean, this is, it's, not a, it's not contained into one nation, right? This is, this is the overall neoliberal project, right, is to roll back on an institutional level, right, the, those kinds of things that were those victories. And so, you know, you could see where, you know, at the same time, you have the rise of new forms of industry that are not well unionized and that are deliberately constructed in a way to prevent those kinds of mass working environments. So, you know, you have instead of you do have like massive logistics warehouses, but they organize their work in a different way so that workers are not, you know, talking to each other quite so often, right? They're not interacting in the same way. They're not working together in the way that people do in uh, and, and have done in, in automobile manufacture, the kind of central point of industrial unions in the mid 20th century. So in some ways, we're in a point where we have to start, where we have to judge or we have to formulate kinds of strategies and tactics that are appropriate to the level of the composition of the class. We also have to recognize the kinds of techniques that not only workers are engaged in already in these situations, but also the kinds of things that capital is doing in order to isolate, atomize, depoliticize workers while they're on the job. And I think technology is absolutely a part. It always has been, but I think it's quite palpable now, whether you are isolated in your home, forced to use your own tools, forced to register your attention on Zoom or something like that, or whether you're working in a, you know, an Amazon warehouse or, or in a, you know, a dangerous grocery store or something like that, right? The things that are keeping us apart or, or that are making our jobs harder or more difficult or more dangerous, I think are palpable. So yeah, I think we're in, a, we're in a moment, right, where it's harder, right? The union density is much lower. The legal terrain is much more unfavorable. People are less likely to have been a part of a, you know, a, a generational tradition of labor militancy. And so in some ways, I'm not, we don't have to reinvent the wheel, but in some ways we are looking at a way, we have to set kind of, I don't want to say modest goals, but we have to say, you know, before we can say stage a strike, right, or something like that, we have to think about getting up to the, the, you know, forging those basic practices of kind of solidarity and of militancy and antagonism that are not always there and are not and, and won't always easily fit within kind of established trade union bargaining and, and things like that. On the question of class composition, you describe yourself in the book as being opposed to ontological accounts of class. So could you explain what an ontological view of class is and, and what, to your mind, is a better way to think about the question of class? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of times when we were first learning about what do we mean by class, you know, you, you get a kind of sociological account, you know, here's 
some charts and graphs and where does your income fall. If you want to make it a little bit more Marxist, you think about the kind of occupation and your relationship to are you managing workers? Are you being managed? Do you own? Are you a small business owner, et cetera, et cetera? So those are, those are what I would think of as what I call ontological or maybe sociological definitions of class, where class is the status that you inhabit, right? Based on certain attributes. And you know, those attributes can change and then they can change and your class status will change, et cetera. And that's very, there's simple and, and, and there's, it's not entirely without merit, but I think there's other ways of looking at class, right? So, and I'm very informed by kind of Italian operismo movement and also a lot of American writers who've been influenced of, by them, you know, beginning in the, the 60s and 70s. And what they were trying to argue is it actually it doesn't make sense to talk about this kind of static version of class because you don't really have a class if you don't have, in a Marxian sense, if you don't have, if you don't have class struggle, right? If you don't have the antagonism. So what you have to do is you have to look for, you have to look for the fight. And when you look for the fight, then you'll start to see class because people fight as a class using forms of organization and that they've established together. And that's where you can actually start to find the sort of mechanisms of class formation. Looking at income and these other kinds of attributes are only going to get you so far because you won't actually, you'll, you'll never find the kind of what's truly relevant for radicals, which is the struggle itself. To me, this is really important, right? There's so much, you know, it's really nice to be of a certain age and to see like so many more people conversant in in Marxist theory and conversing in, in thinking about class and what that means. But you also see it as this kind of just a, like a hammer to beat people over the head. You know, are they authentically from a particular class? Yes or no. How can you tell? And I don't really think that those, that kind of discourse is very useful politically because we're not thinking about what fights are happening and, and how you can intensify them. It's thinking about class in less as a sociological category and more as a kind of political category. And I think that's, that's my interest in it. I want to think about what the fights are brewing and what they look like. And the sociological categories are not going to get us there, right? You have to look at something else. So I think that it's a matter of, of looking, what objects are we looking at and what's the purpose of it? Are we trying to evaluate like the authenticity of individuals? I think the sociological definition of class runs into a problem where you can also, this is where you can get people who become spokespeople for, for classes, right? Well, look, I have ex, you know, all these workers on my side saying this thing or, or supporting me when the, the reality could be more complicated or when political strategies are you know, not exactly effective, right? In the way that we want them to be. And so I think we, we, you know, I'm really eager to see people on the political left kind of get away from exclusively that version of looking at class and to looking at an actual struggles and how people wage them and how people come together. Because I think this is, this is actually the question we need to be answering. So regarding an area where, where you perhaps disagree with other parts of the left, one of the political tendencies that you take to task in, in the book is so-called left accelerationism. Could you explain what acceleration is and in particular its leftist variant and, and where you disagree? So broadly conceived, accelerationism is the idea that there's a kind of telos in technology that in technological development or innovation that should not be opposed. We need to encourage a kind of unfettered technological development for whatever reason, whether it's the essentially, there's a lot of different ways of interpreting accelerationism or, or people bring various political tendencies. I'm not, not a great taxonomist of all of these things, but they agree that, you know, our, our current moment is marked by some kind of stagnation or doldrums and we can get out of it by embracing 
runaway kind of technological development, right? Whether that will lead us to transhumanism, where we kind of merge with the machines like it's the Matrix and we become, you know, sort of cyborgs with uh, that live for eternal life, whether it's some kind of more nihilistic kind of Lovecraftian, you know, worship of a kind of technological... There's some very kind of outre... This would be sort of Nick Land and that kind of strand. Yes, right. Yeah, this kind of like goth, cybernetic, you know, embracing of the void, right? And then on the political left, right, it looks a little bit more benign. The idea that technological dynamics of automation, which are going to replace workers will lead us to a kind of situation where machines do all the necessary work, right? And so that way we actually solve all the problems of labor struggles because we don't have to worry about how the working conditions and hours and all these things that are part of worker politics because machines will just do everything. And therefore we'll have abundant leisure and also material goods that we can all enjoy and we can all live lives, you know, happy lives like billionaires. We can all live like billionaires in Aaron Bastani's formulation. And yeah, I had a problem with this because I thought that I didn't recognize that impulse in any of the worker struggles that I was familiar with, you know, whether my own or others that I'd, I'd researched. But also I, I didn't think it was a very good description of what technological development actually is. There's not really any kind of full automation endpoint for these things. And we know, we, I think we understand that, or there's a lot of good research at least out there about that, that even in highly technological and even highly automated kinds of environments, including digital ones, it still requires immense amounts of human labor. And in what automation does rather than simply eradicate or apportion a set amount of work that is now being going to be done by machines more than people, is it reorganizes work so that now you have a few people who have their job is to kind of develop the technology and to, to run it. You can think of engineers or software developers and, and managers, you know, tend to be very well paid, have good jobs, etc. And then on the other hand, you have increasingly degraded forms of work. So a great example of this is artificial intelligence, right? This is what's going to let us become cyborgs, uh, according to, to the transhumanists, or it will let us become happy layabouts, right, for the left accelerationists. Well, artificial intelligence, let's set aside any of the problems we have with the systems themselves. How do they actually work? Well, you have to train them on large data sets. Well, you have to produce those data sets, you have to feed them into the system, and you have to, you know, kind of demonstrate for the system how they work. Well, how does that happen? Well, that, that requires a lot of really menial kinds of click work, of training data. So, for example, for autonomous cars, right, they have to be able to recognize their environment. So how do they train them? Well, you actually have thousands of people whose nine-to-five job, or, you know, sometimes longer than that, is to sit by on a computer and click on digital images and identify, you know, what is a crosswalk or what is an address. In fact, you've probably done it yourself if you've done a, if you've ever saw, had to solve a CAPTCHA to log into a website, right? You get those, the little grid and it asks you, 
that you're actually doing that work for artificial intelligence training. It turns out that there's that captures are not enough, and so now then then so now they pay people to do this kind of work. So that's not work you're going to ever get rid of, right? If you're relying on these systems, you're always going to have those kinds of things that need to be done. I think a lot about you know how the the landscape of labor is changing in the pandemic. We see. More and more people are relying on e-commerce, as they say, you know, online shopping. But what's the visible manifestation of that beyond the interface in the website is the person on a bike who's bringing it to you, right? Your delivery rider, or your Uber Eats rider, or your the person who's been subcontracted from Amazon to deliver your packages. And many times these are precarious employed, overrepresented migrant laborers. In the case of a lot of the delivery riders, how are you going to get rid of that? You know, every once in a while you'll hear a kind of scheme about like delivery, you know, automated like little delivery robots. But those are quite speculative and, and and not realistic because it's so much easier and also more effective to have low-paid human workers do it instead. Not only is maybe the the kind of accelerationist endpoint. Not desirable in that I think there are limits, ecological and otherwise, to getting to this society where machines do everything for us. But also, I think that it's actually like technically impossible. It's not going to happen. And so, I think I'm not opposed to creating utopian futures or something like that. But they they do have to be grounded in some kind of reality. And I think that you know a kind of Star Trek replicators and asteroid mining is is really not in the cards. And we need to kind of leave those things aside and think a little bit more to the point of what's going on right now. Could the left accelerationists be defended on the basis that in some cases they're not simply arguing for the continued development of technology along the track laid for it by capitalist development, but rather that they're making the argument that capitalism prevents the full development of technology under democratic control, and they're simply holding out the possibility for just how much more advanced technology might be in a post-capitalist society? I mean, that may be the case. Then you have the kind of cart before the horse issue, right? If we're thinking about technological development, it's capitalist development, right? It's it's technology being developed for capitalist purposes. So if that artificial intelligence, that autonomous car, which by the way is never going to come, but if you know the reason it's coming. Or the reason that companies invested billions of dollars into this technology is not to make our lives easier, right? It's for Uber to reduce its labor costs, and it's to make military vehicles better at killing people, right? Those are the prerogatives. So this is something that I, I'm really eager to kind of put across in the book, right? Is that the purpose of technological development is there's not a neutral the idea that there's a kind of a neutral efficiency that's being worked toward. I don't think it's the best way to look at it, right? The efficiencies that capitalists want are lower labor costs, which means paying fewer people or paying people less, right? Which means you have to make sure they're not able to demand more. So you have to break apart existing kinds of worker organization that's been able to advocate for higher wages, and it's also to create kind of predictable to control. The production and distribution of commodities in an orderly way, which means to disempower people from the ability to stop things or to slow them down in any sense, right? This is why a lot of automation is driven not by business concerns but actually by state concerns. If you look at the origin of the term automation. It emerges emerges in Ford Motor Company, but it's derived out of 
industrial techniques that were pioneered by the Air Force in the factories that were manufacturing aircraft for World War II. The U.S. military does not care about keeping costs down. That's, they, you know, we always, this is like the cliche of, of every, like, American left or even liberal, right? You know, to look at the, compare the budget for some social program to the military budget. The military budget's always insane. Or, you know, you hear these, like, anecdotes about $20,000 toilets by, that are, you know, contractors are charging. They don't care about costs, right? What they care about is control. And so that is actually the prerogative in a lot of, and a lot of the technology that you find at work. And so I think if you want a future where you do have worker development of technology, and I am in favor of, of this, you have to say, well, okay, how do we give workers more, how do we empower them more in the workplace? Can we see what kinds of things are, are bothering them or impeding them? What kinds of things they're resisting or even sabotaging because it's, you know, immiserating them or, 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 or presenting itself as some kind of obstacle? And once you know that, then then we can start to think about and conceptualize some kinds of more worker-led kinds of technological innovation. But I think the overall issue is we're, we're not going to, it's going to be very hard to embrace worker-led technological development in, in, within a capitalist society, right? That's the, the premise of capitalism is to separate the workers from the means of production and to control them and to, you know, get more and more out of them as you can. So I think maybe one of the political motivations of the book is to say, you know, I don't want to say that there's no value in thinking about, you know, the future we want to have. And there's a lot of people writing very interesting things about that. And I, I enjoy reading it and you can learn quite a lot from it. But I think there's also, you know, I'm, I'm particularly hungry for more of a, an account of getting from point A to point B. You know, the, what, what are, what are, the, what are the, the strategies that we can use to get to this point where we can start, you know, implementing our plans? And I think that my gambit here is we have to look at the place to start is what people are doing right now, how people are fighting and what kinds of things are their problem at the moment within their working conditions, right? And so once we know that, then we can start getting into kind of composing ourselves as a class, taking various diverse kind of movements and, and thinking about how they can work together to create a different kind of society, one that could implement a more democratic form of planning, economic planning, or worker-led technological development. There are many experiments in this as well, but, but within a capitalist society, you know, they're going to be subject to those kinds of pressures. There's a lot of people experimenting with cooperatives. So instead of going to an Uber driver, there'd be a cooperative where drivers are paid fairly and have better working conditions. But those places are going to have trouble, I think, because they're competing with Uber. And uh, Uber is permitted by the laws of the market, as perverse as they seem, to lose billions of dollars every year and to never turn a profit ever. They never will in their current form. So it's going to be hard for any, any experiment to compete with that. So I think that we need to, at the same time, we need to kind of construct these visions and alternatives. We need to, we need to give the breathing room, the space for them to exist. And by having kind of stronger, stronger and more militant, more antagonistic anti-capitalist movements. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. 
You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.